Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Guys, we are well into the Gospel of Mark. We are jumping into chapter 3 today in our series, Who is Jesus? Within uh, the first two chapters, Jesus has gotten himself into a ton of trouble uh, with the religious leaders of the day. Uh, the way he's doing things is absolutely upside down from what they're used to and kind of the power structures of the day. And there is this uh, compelling and profound drawback not only to follow uh, the traditions and the laws, but ultimately to the heart of God. And this is the fifth of uh, the last of five stories where Jesus does something shocking and the response uh, to Jesus's act of love and compassion uh, draws out a, a tremendous amount of anger from the religious uh, rulers. So we're going to find ourselves here in the first six verses of Mark chapter 3. It says this, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, What is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, there is uh, a lot going on here that that we get to discover about Jesus, some some things that we find that Jesus is cultivating. Uh, Here's kind of our four points today. A safe space, a strong voice, a soft heart, and a sacrificial compassion. The very first thing that we see in this story, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, says and talks about how Jesus shows up at the synagogue, most likely in Capernaum, his kind of now home base, uh, I was preached at the synagogue before. Uh, it's where the, the man who's demon-possessed was freed. And there seems to be somewhat of a setup. And there is a man in the synagogue. We don't know if he was placed there or if they knew he was going to be there. But it says that the Pharisees, in verse 2, they watched him closely to see if he would, he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they're watching this guy who has this shriveled hand. The Greek words talks about kind of this, this deformity to his hand. It could have been from a disease, could have been from an accident, or he was born that way. Um, but within kind of, uh, kind of the ancient kind of religious culture, your bodily disease defect oftentimes would represent to that ancient mindset your blessing or lack thereof from God. And so there's, so it's on the Sabbath. They, they're like, this is it. We're going to catch Jesus. He's, there's no getting out of this one. He's going to break the law by healing this man on the Sabbath. And, and the rule was you can only 
provide healing if it was like a life-threatening disease. So this guy didn't have a life-threatening problem. But what's interesting here is that Jesus, when faced with this scenario, knows kind of what's happening. And he says something at the very beginning that's a bit shocking. And he invites the man. He says, stand up in front of everyone. One of the commentators on this passage says that one can almost feel the man's horror. Had he dreamed his handicap would be made a public spectacle, he surely would never have braved attending a synagogue. Rather than escaping notice, the dread of most persons who bear handicaps or deformities is having people stare them in the face. The man is summoned by Jesus to the center of the synagogue. And there's something about what Jesus is about to do there that isn't done in private like we've seen a lot of his other miracles. There's something he calls him to front and center in the middle of the synagogue. And before we get to the healing, we see that Jesus creates a space of being known. Now, Again, like the commentator said, there is a sense of that that can generate a lot of fear within us, this idea of like, man, well, I, I don't know if I would want to be called out into the middle of the room to show the parts of myself I'm most embarrassed of, the parts of myself that feel deformed or handicapped. But what we find is that when, when God calls us into his presence, when he calls us out of our hiding, is oftentimes the opposite of what happens when we're exposed in the midst of of humanity or culture, sometimes with even church. For instance, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, the very first thing God does after Adam and Eve sin, the very first words of God that ever come out of his mouth in the presence of sin from humanity, in Genesis 3, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid him, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man, and here it is, where are you? And he calls him out. He brings him into that space. And what we find in that moment is that what they were dreading didn't come to pass, and God ultimately does an act of compassion by sacrificing an animal so that they could be covered in their shame. We see this pattern repeated throughout Scripture when God calls someone out, that oftentimes, to their shock, they're met with a different sort of response. Look at John chapter 4. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So if you're familiar with John chapter 4, Jesus has his interaction with a Samaritan woman. And he confronts her and shares with her the things about her life that no one would have known, and offers her living water. And her, her testimony that not only changed her life, but the entire town she lived, when, lived in, was, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, wh- how many of you guys would just be freaked out of your mind if someone went and said everything you've ever did? And it starts to dive into this idea of, of shame, the things we want to keep hidden. All of a sudden, this thing that this woman was trying to keep hidden from Jesus became the center point of her healing. Adam and Eve's propensity to want to hide themselves underneath fig leaves became the opportunity for God to call them into his presence. 
This man who's sitting in the synagogue, probably hiding his shriveled hand, all of a sudden is called into the presence of Jesus for what's about to become a healing. I remember hearing a, a quote not too long ago. It says this, religion says, oh no, I messed up, don't tell dad. But the gospel, the message of Jesus says, oh no, I messed up, I've got to call my dad. There's, there's something upside down about how Jesus invites us into a safe space, even in the midst of our shame. And I think one of the marks of our, of our growing apprenticeship to Jesus is, are you willing to enter into a safe space with Jesus, to be fully exposed before him, to think about the, the stories you don't want anyone to hear or know? David Benner, the psychologist and theologian, says this, But the self we create is a persona, a mixture of the truth of our being and the fictions we spin as we attempt to create a self in the image of an inner fantasy or other liking. The simple truth of our being gets lost in the meta-narratives we spin. We become the fictions we live. Consequently, our way of being in the world is so false and unnatural that our presence is thoroughly ambiguous. It is no wonder that we find the presence of most people so clouded. And it is no wonder that a truly unclouded presence is so luminous and so compellingly noteworthy. And I, and I love that. The, the, the presence we give people is often some persona of our true self and a fiction of ourselves. And it's this clouded version. And Jesus, multiple times in the gospel, he doesn't call people, he doesn't minister to people's version of themselves. He calls the true version of themselves out. He wants to create that safe space for all of us to begin to begin to wrestle with who we are and who God is in that midst. And the thing that prevents us, the same thing that would have prevented this man from ever wanting to be center stage in the synagogue, is this word, shame. Matthias Barker, her, Matthias Barker who's another uh, Christian theologian and um, sorry, sorry, Christian psychologist talks about this when it comes to shame. He says, shame can be viewed as an emotional indicator telling us that our need of being seen, known, and loved is not being met. In God's presence, we experience no shame because we are fully seen in our mess and yet fully loved. Our shame is completely dealt with by God's grace. So I want to ask you a question. What part of your story do you not tell people? What part of your story do you not like to talk about when you meet a new friend? Maybe that you don't even like to share with your spouse or a loved one. You see, we all, ha we all have parts of our story that we don't like to recall, we don't like to bring up. And oftentimes, it's the parts of our stories we don't like to tell are the greatest indicators of places in our life we still sense shame. And I think the invitation of Jesus, just like this man with a withered hand, would rather than be kind of hiding that part of our life in the shadow, to be called forth into his presence. Because what God offers us when we offer him even the shameful parts of our life is an opportunity to receive healing similar like this man's about to, to receive the next thing we see in this story is how Jesus cultivates and desires a strong voice as opposed to just silence. So Jesus called this man 
And it says, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Now there's two paradoxes he gives. One is like, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? And the good he's about to do is healing. To do evil would be to do nothing. And then he transfers it to them. He says, or to save a life or to kill it. And what we just read is that they're about to be plotting to kill his life. And he spins it. He's like, so what, what should you be doing on the Sabbath? Doing good, trying to heal, or trying to plot someone's murder. And he's immediately turning their hypocrisy in on themselves. But it says something. He says, they remained silent. And I think there's something about this that we, what we begin to start finding. It starts to infuriate Jesus. That they're unwilling to speak to the moment that's at hand. This person, they've been watching. They've planted this guy as an opportunity to corner Jesus into breaking some sort of religious tradition rather than recognizing that this man standing before them is in deep need of healing. And they sit there in silence. And as I read that this week, I was just reminded of of our deep need to use our voice, to use our passion, who we are, not to stay back in silence, but to move towards God's redemptive acts. D.A. Carson says, where good needs to be done, there can be no neutral, neutrality. And failure to do the good is to contribute to the evil. It is thus not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, but right to heal on the Sabbath. James Edwards in his commentary says, the test of all theology and morality is either passed or failed by the one's response to the weakest and most defensive, defenseless members of society. This goes along with Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, the wisdom a mother is giving to her son who's a king, when she says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And I think that this, the Pharisee's silence is a picture of what we cannot do as followers of Jesus. When we see something that is wrong, that desperately needs good and redemption, we have to move towards it. We have to raise our voice. Uh, what I would love to do is, one of the ways this is happening within our church, and with so many people are living into this, to raising their voice towards things that matter to God. I want to share just a, a bit of an update on what's been going on with our partnership with Ciudad de Dios, the community in Mexico. It's a refugee camp and a church. And some of the ways that our church has begun to start raising its heart, its passion, its voice to come alongside those who are desperately in need of hope. So let's watch this interview I just had with Sarah. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm excited to have my friend Sarah Overby uh, with us today. And uh, we no, actually know each other for quite a long time, but we uh, got connected as a church last fall um, when Sarah was doing some really amazing work down at the refugee camp down in Mexico. And as a church, got invited to begin to start a long-term partnership with that. And the church's response was, was incredible. Um, out the gate. I mean, I remember uh, over 500 toys and blankets, uh, multiple trips down there. Um, and since then, it's only just continued to grow and develop. So, Sarah, so I was wondering if you could just give us an update 
on what's gone on the last few months, kind of where, where we are, and uh, just some of the new projects and things that are happening down um, at the camp. Yeah, so as Benji mentioned, you know, it really began as like just that first seed that was planted of getting Christmas gifts to kids and blankets on cold people and um, getting shoes. And so that was the initial piece. And with that, um, just generous sort of outpouring in the very beginning, um, from that sort of sprouted all these other um, amazing projects and things um, that have just developed and grown since that first beginning um, several months ago. And so it's been really exciting for me to have a front row seat in seeing volunteers from the church come and seeing actual individuals from the church with different talents and vision and um, just a heart when they go to, to be a part and fill in some of the gaps that are existing at the camp. So. Um, since uh, about December, one of the things that um, Light Church has been able to come alongside and support is some of that infrastructure development um, that really needed to happen. Like as the camp has grown and more people are coming, um, there hasn't been a school available for children. And so there's just been for a long time, Pastor Gustavo's had a huge dream to build a school, to have the land for that school, um, so that the kids, instead of spending months, you know, being uneducated, um, have an opportunity to get an education. And so that's probably been one of the larger um, sort of things that's happened since like church kind of came in and partnered with him. Um, and so the land got bought and the school is being built and it will be opening in um, the end of August. And it's really groundbreaking because it's um, the only one of its kind. Um, in the area. So typically those children come into the area, they're really marginalized and they have no opportunity for education. So this is a huge um, piece. And then for me, just watching the volunteers come and pour in from ESL volunteers to, um, we just recently had a big shoe drive where um, an open table got together and saw that kids didn't have shoes and gathered uh, close to 800 pairs of shoes. Um, it was just so huge. And um, the relationships that have been built and um, also um, just really, it's not even as you know, blankets and needs have been met, it's the relationships too yeah. um, that have been built. And Pastor Gustavo even said to me, you know, over time, Light Church has become our family. And that's how we see you guys here is you are always welcome. Our door is always open because everyone knows that you're with us as family. And that's what I've seen more than anything is this sort of camaraderie and companionship um, come alongside him and the people there. Yeah, it's, I think from the very beginning, that was our goal was like a long-term relationship. Um, and watching that move from, Kind of a um, kind of a larger decision as a church, and how it's kind of just funneled into friends and open tables yes. and relationships. Mm -hmm. I thought it'd be cool. I think one thing that's been fun is watching people connect the dots with their passion, yes, with something that could be really beautiful. That could maybe you could just tell even what happened like last weekend with mm -hmm. with Riley's group and yeah, her vision. Sort of thing. And, and I, I think, you know, when we initially began this and got in front of the church and shared the need, 
something, you know, the Bible talks often about how, you know, it talks about the analogy of scattering seed on fertile soil. And I think, you know, this soil is very fertile. Um, but people sat there listening and, and really thought, you know, how can I use the talent that God's given me or the vision and dreams that God's given me to really partner and scatter that seed on this soil to develop deeper relationships, to bring love, God's love to, this, to these people. And so one of those people was um, Riley, who goes to the church. She's involved with Christian surfers, and she's listening to this and thinking, how amazing would it be to get these kids out in the waves? And so she reached out and gathered some volunteers and just really headed up the start of a surf ministry to these kids. And so we just recently had the first one. There were tons of wetsuits. I mean, probably like 60 wetsuits or more um, donated. We had boards donated, volunteers showed up, and we had uh, close to 30, maybe like 28 kids and moms too get up on waves and surf um, and just be able to like take the burden off for a few hours and just run in the water and get up on a board and just to see that there really is a space in all of this coming together as a family um, with Pastor Gustavo and these people. There's a space for people who are saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a dentist and I'd love to be involved and do something there. Or whatever the talent is, it's been really neat to see the church just kind of raise their hand and say, I, I want to head this up and I want to bring some people in to do it. So it's been really, really cool. You mentioned uh, kind of lifting the burden off. I, the things I, I hear every time mm-hmm. uh, people come back is the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just talk a little bit about... Um, the people that are in this camp, like what are some of the things that they've gone through that have brought them to this camp? And um, I know you can't share every story, but maybe just to give, if people are unaware of like how this kind of came about, like what are some of the things that would cause someone to end up there? Yeah, so really the, the main sort of, as we listen to people's stories and, um, and they share, and even the other day when the shoe group came, shoe crew came, um, there were people there that were sharing their stories of human trafficking, um, having people, young women around them, um, they, they would disappear and never be seen again, and they knew mm. that they were being threatened with this, or um, just vi- local violence. I know in Haiti right now there's many Haitian refugees, and they've shared that um, they didn't have a home, the infrastructure was completely broken, um, the, you know, there was a lot of violence within the streets, there was no um, running water, electricity, people were getting sick, no hospitals for their children. And so they make their way um, over to Brazil and then they cross through 11 countries over five to six months, um, paying as they go, making money as they go to get themselves to Tijuana. Um, and so what some, uh, the journey that these people take, um, there's always risks of trafficking even along the way. Um, many people have come from Michoacan, Mexico. Um, I think the majority of them have at this time, and they have um, issues with the cartel taking their land to steal avocados. Um, and so, and then the other issue um, is that a lot of families come with their teen girls because the cartel... Um, try to take the girls for their sons. And many of them have told us that they've had to hide in their homes and leave in the dark of the night because of how much they've been um, trying to get their daughters from the home. So there's just a lot of violence, trafficking, um, and danger that they're escaping from. Yeah. It's, um, if you get a chance to go, even just hearing this, I think there's something so powerful about story. 
and recognizing that these aren't just stories for someone, but there's something about us that's tied into that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, something I was, we were just talking, Sarah, I think that was really cool is that as, as this becomes less of something that's happening over there, and as it becomes, like Pastor Gustavo says, Pastor Gustavo says that we're becoming family, um, those stories begin to start joining together. And I just, that was so cool about even how we were talking about how um, the school that's being built, um, that someone, again, part of light, just was like, hey, what, what if they had like a, a you know, technology, like a technology room, and mm-hmm. computer lab type thing. And some of the wetsuits that were donated are like top of the line wetsuits and the shoes that we don't, and it's, and it's amazing watching people. And there's so, so many, it would take forever to say thank you individually to all of you guys. But I love what, what's happening is, is people's best are being brought to yes. these people who've gone through so much. Yes. And um, I don't know, I, I just think that, that if that can continue to be the story, what a picture of the kingdom, yeah. of this upside down reality of these people who've gone through things that you, we, we don't even want to ha- dream mm-hmm. about the hardship that they've gone through mm-hmm. um, would be met in a space yes. uh, because of Pastor Gustavo, people like you, other people who've given their time and passion to this, mm-hmm. uh, to see that. So. Uh, any like kind of last encouragement like if someone's like hearing this and they're stirred in their heart um, things that they could consider things that they could do um, to kind of maybe step into this or something like mm-hmm. this or mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I think that the, you know looking at all of this there really is just I think sometimes we sit there and we just go what do I really have to bring to the table um, you know do I have like anything of use and What's been so amazing to see is volunteers come and people just, just in a face-to-face conversation and to listen to a story. And even um, when we were there doing the shoes, um, one of the volunteers was there and a woman was sharing with her that she you know, had been trafficked at, at one point um, in her journey and gotten away. And she was just started sobbing. And without even thinking, this volunteer just, you know, grabbed her and put her in her arms. And they just wow. had this very human moment because, you know, just together, like there was no barrier, there was no border, there was no, you know, anything separating them. And it was just like all of a sudden they were sisters and they were caring for each other. And so even if you're, you know, you just want to come and give your tangible presence in your relationship, there's always space for that. Um, we've had people come along on a trip because they want to find out what their part can be in it. And Mm. maybe you're sort of listening going, I don't know what it is. I I just need to get there and see it. Um, It's okay to not know yet and to kind of just get there and sit back and watch and observe. Um, So there really is space for anybody um, to get involved, to come um, or to give or to you know, have a lemonade stand and raise money for food or whatever it might be. Um, I think there's just anybody can get involved and be a blessing to these people. So good. Um, yeah, so you can always visit our website. Matt Johnson kind of helps coordinate a lot of those trips. You can send him an email. There's one coming up in, in July to help build a playground for that school that's going to be opening up. Um, and we'd, yeah, just encourage you just to be prayerful um, about finding yourself, creating those really deep, strong human connections uh, in space. And, and I think that would just be um, just the prayer, is that this really would become not something that we go to, but something that becomes a part 
of us. I know um, how much that community, um, the bravery of the women, the compassion of Pastor Gustavo, mm-hmm. the joy of those kids is like mm-hmm. shaped us, or taught us about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I always think it's really important just to point out is in these types of scenarios, this is much less about what we bring and much more what we discover yeah. and what we get to experience about the goodness of God. So Amen. Sarah, thanks so much for um, just updating us and sharing us a little bit about the story and continuing to be a part of helping be that bridge uh, for these two communities to become a family. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> hey, we're here with Pastor Gustavo. And um, as you can tell, there is a school, part of the school is just finished being built and then there's now a second building. So Pastor Gustavo, could you tell us what's being built and what's God doing here right now? God bless you. We are here in the Church Ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and we are making two buildings. Uh, this is going to be an elementary school and for all the people who live here in the canyon, in the Scorpio Canyon. Amazing. And um, how many children are, are here right now at the FG? We have 500 children in this moment. Wow. in the church. Where are these, where are the children from? What are some of the countries? From everywhere, but they're from Haiti, from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, from Brazil, from Chile, and from Mexico. And, um, and so the, all of these children will be able to go to school. Yeah. And he said it's going to be a Christian? It's going to be the first Christian school. All the all around of this area. Amazing. And you have some other projects that you're wanting to do. What are some of the other projects you want yeah, to do here? Uh, I want to make my a big kitchen, a big dining room because we are a lot of people. They eat in the church, and then we are going to make a sport field in here. And you are going to make the playgrounds for us. <laughs> yeah. Thank, you. Thank yeah. you so much. Of course. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you, Pastor Gustavo, for, for letting us get to come alongside all that you're doing and God's doing here. Uh, any, anything Light Church can be praying for? What are some things we can pray for? Well, you, you have to pray for all my workers because okay. they are doing this great job. Okay. And thank you. Thank you to all the church. God bless you. God bless your family, your economy, your health, everything. God bless you. Thank you. So thankful for all that God's doing through you guys and through Sarah and Pastor Gustavo. Um, Nelson Mandela in his autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom, talks about his connection to the people in his own country and where they were, something that he couldn't divide. He says this, freedom is indivisible. The chains on any one of my people were the chains on all of them. The chains on all of my people were the chains on me. And I think this is the invitation of Jesus, just to not sit there silently as good as waiting to be done, but to step into that. The third point talks about Jesus' desire to create a soft heart as opposed to a stubborn one. The fifth verse says, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And just a couple notes here. Jesus is angry and deeply distressed. 
Again, Jesus is showing righteous indignation. There's something about him that cannot stand what he's seeing. And then, but he tells us, Mark tells us why he's deeply distressed, why he's angry, and it's because of their stubborn hearts. If there's something that evokes raw emotion from our God, it's when we allow our hearts to become calloused. It's when our hearts become stubborn. The Greek word for stubborn is translated best, not just as maliciousness, but as an unwillingness to understand. The Greek word parese, an unwillingness to understand. These, these people were unwilling to understand what was going on in this man's life because they were so caught up in trying to get Jesus to fit into their traditional box of religion that they weren't seeing the bigger picture of what needed to be done. Again, Carson says, the greatest enemy of divine love and justice is not opposition, not even malice, but hardness of heart and indifference to divine grace. The greatest enemy of divine love is the hardness of heart. And so I would just encourage you just to evaluate your own heart because the minute there's pockets of your heart that begin to grow hardened, is the minute that we can begin to stop knowing and recognizing where God wants to move. Now, let's be honest, though. The places where our hearts have gotten hard oftentimes are attached to the wounds that we have felt. And so there's work that needs to be done to keep our hearts soft. There's a reliance on the Holy Spirit for Him to continue to work and to make our hearts malleable and soft and not grow hard. And that the longer you live, the more trauma you've experienced, the more grief you've walked through, the easier it is for your heart to become calcified. And I think what we see here is an opportunity not to have a stubborn heart, but to have a soft heart instead. I think about the Pharisees in this instance, and they had become so focused and narrow-minded on the keeping of the Sabbath. This is so fascinating to me that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath frustrated them that they would be able to plan murder on the Sabbath. And sometimes we do that. When our hearts grow hard, we overemphasize places in our life that haven't grown hard as to make us feel better about the places that have grown hard. For instance, there, there may be times in my life where I'll be so passionate about helping the poor, but in the meantime, my relationships are suffering because of my selfishness. Or there might be times in my life where I really care about holiness and living morally and honoring God with my thoughts and my mind and my words and my body. And at the same time, I've completely turned a blind eye to maybe some of the larger um, systemic issues of poverty and, and things that God wants me called to. And the idea is that you cannot use one area of your heart that's good to shadow the area of your hearts that have grown hard. God wants our whole heart. He does not want us to grow stubborn in our hearts. And the last thing that we see in this verse, in this passage, I'm sorry, says, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I mean, this is so wild. The Pharisees and the Herodians could not be more opposite. The Pharisees are the religious power structure, the Herodians are the political power structure of the day. They do not get along, but they both feel threatened by who Jesus is. Religiosity and political identity is being threatened because of what Jesus is doing through his upside-down acts of love and compassion. And so something to, to note here is that 
In order for this man to receive healing, he needs to stretch out the parts of his life that feel the most shameful. Sometimes receiving the compassion of Jesus is costly. Please hear me. Sometimes receiving the healing and mending we need costs us something. It costs us um, stretching out that part of our life that feels shameful. Um, oftentimes it looks like just confession. It might like doing work through finding a good Christian therapist or or repenting and, and continuing to do that. Sometimes it takes, it's, that's painful, that process of stretching out that part. But I, I want to just, I want to point something out. James Edward, again, his commentary says, faith is not a private wager, but a public risk that Jesus is worthy of trust when no other hope can be trusted. What happens is when we are willing to risk stepping out of our shame to get the healing that we desperately need, we recognize that the one who it truly costs to bring healing was Jesus. You see, at this moment, Jesus got a, just got a life sentence, a death threat, because he refused to let this man go unhealed. And so sometimes choosing healing can be a painful process, but it's always worth it because it costs Jesus more than it ever costs us. And so I just, just two things I would just encourage you with. Number one is just practice confession. Take those areas of your life that you've hidden away and bring them into the light. Find somebody, a community, an open table, a friend, a pastor, a therapist, and say, can I have an honest conversation with you? And refuse to let the temptation of the enemy for you to stay in your shame rob you from the joy that comes from receiving that healing. This is why James 5.16 5, says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The healing's wrapped around this man's extension of that shameful part of his body. And so oftentimes it's not until we extend, tell the truth, and bring to light those things that Jesus gets to do the deeper work of healing in our life. Dallas Willard says, confession is very deep in the process of discovering the soul. And then the last thing I would just remind us all is that this story reminds us of the great cost that Jesus' compassion was to him and the great power it means for us. If you have never given your full self over, the things you're proud of and the things you're shameful over, over to Jesus, and you'll never know the incredible mercy that he gives you that cost him greatly, but he did it with the joy set before him, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. So that's your invitation today. That in the same way we move towards our brothers and sisters in Mexico who have been, uh, you know, ran away from things of violence and trafficking and they're met with a hug and a place to stay. Think how much more that, that that is our story, that when we step out of those places of our life, that we are met not just, not just with um, a temporal assistance, but with an eternal hope because of Jesus. And that we would just cherish, we would savor the incredible costly compassion that Jesus extends that cost him his life for this man to be healed. And it cost him his life so that we could receive that same healing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for who you are, all that you've done. And Jesus, ask that today would be a day of healing. 
a day where we move from our shame into the light, a day where we move from things that have trapped us into the healing that cost you so much. And Lord, I pray that as a result of us receiving your compassion, that we would become compassionate people. We would not be silent people, that we would not have stubborn hearts. But Lord, you'd continue to cultivate something within us that is beautiful because of what we have first received in the love that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.